interesting transition coming out of that time into this time. As we're talking about this idea of pointing our kids to, to Jesus. And, you know, it'd be very easy for us to, to think that what that simply means is declaring to them that there's a Savior who died so that lost sinners might be rescued into God's family. And that's true. That's a part of the story. We're actually going to get to that highlight a couple weeks from now when we jump into chapter 15 of Luke's gospel account, the parable of the prodigal son, one of the most glorious, encouraging uh, parables in all of scripture. And yet there's also this aspect of pointing our kids to Jesus that gets into the notions of cross-bearing and self-denial, what it is to truly follow him, not just as Savior, but as Lord, to give our lives to him as disciples, to, to lay down our nets, so to speak, and follow him. And so we get something of the essence of that this morning, a little different flavor uh, where we are in Luke's gospel account, but, but nonetheless, uh, a, a fuller picture of what it is to follow Christ and what it is to call others to follow Christ. And so uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and invite you to open up your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 14. We'll be in verses 20, uh, 1 through 24 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to track up on the screen behind me with where we are in this morning's passage, as well as any other scripture references or quotes from people smarter than me. Uh, let me go ahead as you're turning there and, and pray for our time in God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you promise that your word will not return void. Lord, there are passages of scripture that we would just as soon move past quickly because they're uncomfortable, they're difficult to grapple with, they're heavy in language. This morning being one of those passages and yet all of scripture is for our good, for our benefit. Lord, I praise you even that with the way that we're working through Luke's gospel account, we've been forced to slow down in these chapters filled with heavy red letter words when we would just assume most of us quickly move to chapter 19 to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and get to the, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Lord, I pray that as we open up the scriptures together this morning, that you would meet us there with comfort where we need comfort, with encouragement where we need encouragement, with hope where we need hope, with exhortation where we need exhortation, with call to repentance where repentance is necessary. Lord, would you do all of these things in this place, the only omniscient one who knows every one of us and everything that we've been going through these these past few days since we last gathered in this place together. Holy Spirit, would you move in power as we sit with the scriptures in front of us that we might walk out of here different for your glory and for our joy. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, I pray. Amen. So this morning's passage, if you're new or if you just need a, a refresher, one of those previously on, you know, kind of Netflix things, this morning's passage comes on the heels of Jesus's teaching about the narrow door, the small door of entrance into the kingdom of, of God, that door being Jesus Christ himself, the only door that leads to true and lasting freedom, the only door that leads to indestructible joy. 
that there's a door so narrow, I mentioned this last week, that it's easy to miss it, like treasure hidden in a field or a pearl of great value hidden beneath the water, a door so narrow that it forces us to leave some things behind, things that just don't fit through that kingdom of heaven door, things like the crowd majority, as Jesus says, uh, inevitably many will choose the broad path, things like selfishness, ego, and pride, If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's the narrow way, the narrow door, the door that swings open to the poor in spirit, the door that swings open to those who mourn sin and its ravaging effects on this broken world, the door that swings open to the gentle and lowly in heart, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the door that swings open to the peacemakers and those persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a lonelier path in that fewer enter through that door, which has to make one wonder what to make of the American South where there are benefits to being a Christian. Contrasted that lonelier path with the many who are sure that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, a clear expectation of welcomed entrance into the master's house, all the while standing on the outside looking in, knowing Jesus only nominally, only socially, only superficially, a house forsaken. It's in the wake of that sobering teaching on the narrow door that Jesus finds himself yet again sharing a meal in the home of a Pharisee. If you pick up in verse one of chapter 14, Luke tells us, One Sabbath when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. this This is the third time in Luke's gospel account that Jesus receives an invitation to gather for a shared meal in the home of a Pharisee. On each and every one of those occasions, Jesus makes things incredibly uncomfortable as he challenges the cultural norms, the cultural expectations of those around him. There was the gathering around the table of Simon the Pharisee in chapter seven, where a woman believed by many scholars to have been a town prostitute showed up uninvited and fell at the feet of Jesus, kissing his feet and wiping them with her hair. An act considered scandalous among respectable women. More than that, Luke tells us she took an alabaster flask of perfumed oil that she had in her possession and poured the oil on Jesus's feet. An incredible act, not only of sacrifice, but humility, as such an anointing was typically reserved for a person's head. Caught up in a moment of worship, this woman was, pouring out not only her perfume, but her heart. To which Simon responded, in that case, by concluding that Jesus must not even be a prophet, much less God's promised Messiah. After all, any good prophet would refuse to allow such a sinner to come within arm's length. In that particular situation, Luke presenting us with two contrasting responses to Jesus, two very different understandings of sin and grace. A forgiven sinner overwhelmed with extravagant love and a self-righteous man overwhelmed with inconsiderate contempt. And then there's the unnamed Pharisee, chapter 11, who was scandalized by Jesus' failure to wash his hands before dinner which is not so much a hygiene issue, but rather a man-made rule for the purposes of ceremonial purity, meaning that the religious leaders would wash their hands before eating in order to remove the dirtiness associated with having come in contact with the world. 
an act of defilement in the mind of the Pharisee on Jesus's part, like Jesus's welcoming of the sinful woman in the house of Simon. Like Jesus's association with Levi and his friends, going back even further to chapter five, where you may recall the Pharisees and their scribes grumbling at Jesus's disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What are you doing, Jesus? Not only were Levi and his friends ceremonially unclean in the eyes of the religious leaders, close proximity to them, a fast track to defilement, but to share a meal with such people was a sign of acceptance, of identification, of friendship, of brotherhood. In that particular instance, with societies disreputable. I mean, Jesus may as well have been seated at a table of lepers, as far as the scribes and Pharisees were concerned. It made no sense for those who perceived themselves to be righteous in the economy of God. And Jesus, as we saw, took that opportunity to leverage the criticism of the religious elite into a mission statement. As he answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A seat at the table of forgiveness for those who will acknowledge their sin, abandon themselves, and turn to Jesus in faith. Coming back to this morning's passage, we should expect things to get a little uncomfortable as Jesus challenges yet again the cultural norms and expectations of those around him. In this case, invited into the home of not only a Pharisee, but a ruler of the Pharisees. Let's up the ante a little bit this morning. And it's a setup from the start, mind you, as this ruler of the Pharisees and his religious friends all have their eyes on Jesus like hawks looking at him through a lens of scrutiny, watching him carefully, verse one, to see if he might give them something incriminating. Verse two tells us, and behold, in that setting, there was a man before him, before Jesus, who had dropsy. Dropsy is a medical condition where fluids build in the soft tissues of the body, oftentimes a symptom of underlying kidney failure, perhaps even heart failure. In other words, we're talking about a man very likely in critical condition here. And Luke tells us that Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. He's encountered it more than once before. In fact, not only is this the third time Jesus finds himself at the dining table of a Pharisee, but two, this is Jesus' third encounter with the Pharisees regarding matters of healing on the Sabbath. There was the man with the withered hand, chapter 6, as well as the woman with an 18 years long disabling spirit, chapter 13. Justin preached on that passage just a few weeks ago both of whom Jesus healed in the synagogue on the Sabbath, both healings for which Jesus received pushback from the religious leaders. Coming back to this morning's passage, knowing their thoughts, Jesus asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And verse four tells us they remained silent. And then he took the man and healed him, sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. God gave the Sabbath for the good of his people, for protection from the idolatry of overwork and self-trust, 
for joyful remembrance of God and his redemptive work, for soul refreshment and communion and fellowship with God, for looking ahead to the final rest that would be provided in the coming Messiah. The Pharisees, they were more enslaved than their ancestors in Egypt ever were as they stood in the presence of the only one who could truly satisfy their restless souls, so caught up in their own Sabbath laws that they failed to recognize the one who could bring them true Sabbath rest. To say it was okay on the one hand for Jesus to perform such a healing would have gone against their strict observance of the Sabbath, having established a code of morals and regulations that went far beyond the scriptures, more rigid than the law of Moses. It wasn't, to say it wasn't okay on the other hand for Jesus to perform such a healing, well, it would have communicated something of a coldness, of a callousness. Pharisees had their tithing down to the dollars and decimals, yet they had managed to miss the law's heart-piercing demands by way of their insulated rules. And with that, a failure to truly love God from the heart. In addition, they'd failed to embrace the heart of the good Samaritan in welcoming strangers, in caring for widows and orphans, in helping those in need. Right? They're keenly aware in this moment that Jesus has them between a rock and a hard place as he often tends to do with the religious leaders in his day. And so they remain silent. And Jesus heals the man, Luke tells us, sends him on his way, refusing to allow their pharisaical thinking to stand in the way of human flourishing. Verse 7 now, he told a parable, Jesus did, to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your seat to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus notices that he's among a crowd of people for whom social status, being seen and admired, is an incredibly big deal. We've talked about this before as a church. The Pharisees focused a great deal on, on the outward. They cared a great deal about appearances. Having made public recognition and self-praise the motivations of their religious practice. They loved the best seat in the synagogues. The seat facing the congregation that, that brought any person who sat there into prominent view. They loved greetings in the marketplaces. The public recognition associated with being a person of respect in the religious community. Love of self, again, in contrast to a love for God and neighbor. It's to these lovers of self that Jesus presents a parable, one established on the wisdom of an old proverb. Going back to Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 and 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. The parable itself that Jesus tells, specific in its situational application for those within earshot, as Jesus challenges the social constructs and systems of his day. I mean, how embarrassing to, 
to grab the seat of greatest prominence, the place you think you deserve in your perceived self-importance only to be brought down a peg or two in front of everyone. As someone else not only rightfully takes your place, but sends you packing and heading shamefully to the cheap seats. You ever been to a sporting event? Your ticket costs a little less than others in that same assembly of people. And you notice that the, the stadium or the arena hasn't quite filled up. And you think to yourself, well, I can just move down a few rows, maybe three or six or 20 or 30. And you kind of work your way down and you think you're good, you're safe. And you sit there for about five, 10 minutes. And all of a sudden you get that shameful tap on the shoulder for that person who arrived to the game late, uh, for whom those seats truly do belong. And then you have to shamefully get up and head bowed down, walk your way back up those three or six or 10 or 30 rows back to the seats that were yours to begin with. Jesus' parable, it's, it's broad in its application for all of us. If for no other reason than what Jesus says in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, going all the way back to the beginning of this great book of the Bible, chapter one, Mary's song of praise. He has shown strength with his arm, the Lord has. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It should come as no surprise to us by the time we get to chapter 14, this upside down nature of God's kingdom, which Luke has put on display over and over and over again. It was lowly shepherds to whom the angel appeared with the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. It was a promiscuous woman who fell at Jesus' feet and cleansed them with her tears. It was a despised Samaritan whom Jesus made the hero of one of his most famous parables. As we'll see in the weeks to come, Chapter 18, it's the self-righteous Pharisee whose prayers go unheard, blinded by his own self-sufficiency and pride, while the sinful tax collector walks away justified before God in humble recognition of his desperate need for God's mercy and forgiveness. I've shared this before. C.S. Lewis describes humility as feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all of your life. I might put that in a frame and put it in my office. The Pharisees were, were caught up in the silly nonsense of their own dignity, as is oftentimes the case with each and every one of us. And with that, not infinite relief, that's not the outworking, but restlessness and unhappiness. We see that too over and over again in Luke's gospel account. And ultimately, Jesus says destruction as pride comes before the fall. Luke goes on in verse 12. He said also Jesus did to the man who had invited him. Now he zooms in on the host of this party. When you give a dinner or a banquet, Jesus says, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just, Jesus says. 
Right? Here he does something we've seen him do before as he risks embarrassing the very man who had invited him in in order to further make sense of the nature of God's kingdom. There's this temptation to, to exercise hospitality toward those who have the means to reciprocate. Giving, motivated by an expectation to receive in return each and every time. And Jesus says that's not what the kingdom of heaven is like. Which, by the way, is, is not a, a literal call to shun your friends or your family members to never have them over for dinner. He's trying to give the essence of what he's come to accomplish, the heartbeat of the kingdom of God. Remember Jesus' reading of the Isaiah scroll going all the way back to chapter 4 in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, where he read chapter 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a picture of mercy, the very heart of Jesus' ministry, the, the Lord's anointed having come to preach good news to the poor, the destitute and needy, the impoverished in spirit, having come to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the oppressed, to set imprisoned spirits free, free from bondage to Satan, chapter 8, as we saw in the healing of the garrison demoniac, free from bondage to money, as we'll see in chapter 19 in the story of Zacchaeus. Having come to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, which of course we see in the physical sense in the healing of the blind beggar on the road to Jericho, chapter 18 to come. One of the many instances of Jesus bringing physical healing to the blind. And yet we also know that Jesus came to open the spiritual eyes of blinded sinners. That they might see in his glorious face the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Having come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Hearkening back to the year of Jubilee, Leviticus chapter 25. A year when slaves were set free from their servitude. A year when those in debt were released from their burdensome obligations. Jesus having come to bring about the greatest of jubilees. Setting sinners free from the enslaving servitude of sin. Bearing the wages of our sin that we might be freed from that burdensome debt and curse. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus offers us a picture of that great jubilee, a feast attended by society's outcasts, those who could never repay their gracious hosts. And rather than identify them as someone other than us, we're meant to say, that's me. It must have sounded so foreign to the ruler of the Pharisees, who was accustomed to inviting people of notoriety into his home. Failing to grasp something of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom as it pertains to God's undeserved, unrepayable, unfathomable mercy and grace. If he had known this mercy and grace for himself, there would have been a few more of society's outcasts in his home. As God has been merciful to me, so I shall be merciful to others. Luke goes on in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What a weird moment socially. Like, that's forced if you, if you didn't see it the first time. This maybe uncomfortable attempt to break the tension, I don't know. Perhaps cut into the awkward silence of the moment. As this man declares blessing for all who find themselves seated at the master's table someday in the kingdom of God. He's not wrong in that. 
But it's the kind of statement that a person makes only if they believe that they themselves will someday be seated at that very table. Again, going back to last week, the religious leaders, they were sure that theirs was the kingdom of heaven. A clear expectation of welcomed entrance into the master's house. All the while standing on the outside looking in and their forsaking of the narrow door. So Jesus responds to the man, verse 16, saying to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for that banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready. This man's just spoken up. Jesus responds to him, zooming in on him now with a parable of his own, reflective of the cultural and social norms of Jesus' day as he describes the host of a great banquet who sent out invitations ahead of time so as to know how much food to prepare for his guests. That's not uh, novel to us, right? We do that oftentimes as we invite people to birthday parties for our children, uh, weddings, and, and other social gatherings, But in Jesus' day, there was a second invitation that would go out, the day of the banquet. The banquet here, as we've seen in previous parables, representing the marriage supper of the Lamb, that great feast that will someday take place in the age to come for we who are united to Christ by faith. The parable goes on in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses, those who had been invited. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. To accept the first invitation only to then decline the second one, the day of the event, would have been quite the insult. An embarrassment to the host of of any social gathering of consequence. In this case... Terrible excuse after terrible excuse. Leaving the host wondering, after all that time, after all that preparation, is anyone going to show? One man having purchased a field that he had never seen? Really? There was no Zillow back then, no pictures to look at. What is he doing? Another having purchased 10 to 15 tons of livestock without having examined them first. The third having gotten married since the first invitation had gone out, now unable to make good on his commitment. Perhaps that third example, we can at least get our heads around a little bit, right? But broadly speaking, what what you have here is Jesus pressing on possessions and affections, the kind of possessions and affections that would lead them to send their regrets. Again, remember, this is symbolic of the marriage supper of the Lamb to come. Wish I could be there. But if they had truly wanted to be there, they would have been there. They would have worked it out. I can assure you, if any of you had come up to me with tickets to the college football national championship a few weeks ago, I would have worked it out. (laughs) The the religious leaders in Jesus' day perhaps had the appearance of wanting the kingdom, but they didn't really want the kingdom as Jesus described it. As is the case with many today. Commitment to Christ with conditions attached. The kingdom as I see it on my terms. Jesus isn't demonizing 
possessions nor affections for others. He's declaring that nothing is worth declining the invitation to the great feast to come. Nothing. That many people will not be at the marriage supper of the Lamb because other things captured the affection of their hearts. But lest we think that the table will be surrounded by empty seats and God will not get his glory, Jesus goes on to say, verse 21, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Does the master cancel the feast in the wake of the many having sent their regrets? No. He invites the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Again, an invitation to society's outcasts. Not only literally meaning those with debilitating ailments, but symbolically representing the sinners, the tax collectors, the Samaritans of Jesus' day. The riffraff of society would be another way to put it. Those of humble notoriety and social status, happy for a seat at the table. No terrible excuses here, Jesus. We shouldn't have been here in the first place. Me, great king? You're inviting me, who has no business at this table, into this great feast? What astonishing kindness. What immeasurable mercy and grace. I wouldn't be anywhere else. Are you kidding me? Not for all the riches in the world. The treasure hidden in a field, again. The pearl of great value. And the servant said, verse 22, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. There are still seats. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Similar to last week, this would have been shocking for a first century Jewish, Jewish person to hear. The master in the parable not only going on to invite those in the highways outside of the city, representing the inclusion of the Gentiles at the great banqueting table of heaven's king, but two, declaring that those originally on the invite list won't be there, those who were sure that theirs was the kingdom. Going back to last week, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her, her wings, and you were not willing Behold, your house is forsaken. You shall not taste my banquet. Jesus tells this parable, an indictment on the Pharisees in the home of a leader of the Pharisees. That's bold. A room filled with the religious establishment. Men standing in Jesus' estimation on the outside looking in. God's salvation, it's not by cultural privilege nor religious pedigree. We must respond to the invitation to the great feast. Jesus Christ, the narrow door. The only way into the great banquet of heaven. I would ask this morning in light of this passage, in light of these parables... Do we really want to take part in the feast to come? Or will other things consume us so that we someday find ourselves on the outside looking in? 
As I said last week, it's not enough to sit under teaching about the narrow door, nor is it enough to say we'll enter through it, to respond to the first invitation. We must enter through the narrow door, through faith in Christ. Going back to last week, I would urge any and all who are standing on the outside of that door right now to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus while there's still time. That door, as we saw last week, it won't remain open forever. A door that Jesus says sadly few will enter. Again, I would invite us to to sit with the question, as Paul says elsewhere, to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith to ask, am I a part of, of the broad representation of religion and the religious establishment, perhaps I'm missing it? Am I one of the many nominal Christians? Am I one of the many cultural Christians in our context? Or have I truly embraced the lonelier path, the one that leads to true and indestructible joy? And for we who have entered that door by grace through faith, Again, these words of Jesus, they're meant to fill us with both joyful gratitude and sobering urgency. You can't get away from the both and at this point in Luke's gospel account. Joyful gratitude that we've been invited to a seat at the table by God's grace. That our response would be one and the same. Me, great king, you've invited me into this. I wouldn't be anywhere else. What immeasurable kindness and grace. If I could just, in closing this morning, put a picture of that great feast to come before us. Luke chapter 19. Excuse me, Revelation chapter 19. Been saying Luke way too much lately. John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. A great multitude. Every seat filled. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know about you. There's a lot that makes my heart heavy these days. But one of the things that makes my heart really, really happy is the prospect of participating in that great feast to come. Jesus would go on to give his very life that we might know the joy of a seat at the the table that awaits. Again, what astonishing kindness. What immeasurable mercy and grace. I wouldn't be anywhere else, Lord. Not for all the riches in the world. That's so easy to say. So easy to make our confession. It's so much harder for our hearts to functionally grab hold of those words. Not for all the riches in the world, Jesus. Joyful gratitude, paired with a sobering urgency and compassion. Yet again, as the great feast to come, it hasn't yet come. 
that there's still time, like the servant in the parable, to go out to the streets and the lanes of the city, to go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that God's house might be filled to the praise of his glorious grace. We're going to continue down this road, on this journey to Jerusalem for several weeks to come with teachings that are very similar, different word pictures, and yet Jesus is going to press on us. His words heavy. His words pushing back with full force on the notion of this easy believism that exists in our context. This idea that I prayed a prayer, I filled out a card. I'm just going to coast to my death now. And I'll hold up that card when I breathe my last breath and say, see, Jesus calls us to something so much deeper. A relationship with him that cannot divorce Christ as Savior from Christ as Lord and King. In a moment, we get to worship this Jesus. Our song, not only declaring the hope of salvation that's found in him, And the joyful gratitude for all that he's accomplished for us, yes and amen. But our song also including the kind of lyrics that say, I've decided to follow you. Help me to lay down my nets, the things that entangle Jesus by your grace, by your spirit. I can't do it without your help. But I want to. I desperately want to. I want to follow where you lead. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like. And we'll see again more of what that means and looks like in the weeks to come. But for now, I just invite us to to worship our Savior and King with our song. With that, with the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. If you missed it on your way in, there are communion cups on the back table. You're welcome to go grab one of those over the course of these last few songs. As a church, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. And this is a moment to celebrate the lamb. The name of that great feast, the marriage supper of the lamb. And as we read elsewhere in the book of Revelation, the lamb who was slain, his blood shed, his body broken, that we might have a seat at the table. Remember that, sit with that imagery of Revelation 19 as you receive of those elements this morning and let's continue to worship Jesus together.